From humble beginnings as a bedtime story, to an unremarkable release in obscurity, to its eventual rebirth as a holiday classic, today's movie is one that underwent a journey similar to that of the Sanderson sisters themselves, returning from the dead on Halloween night to wreak havoc. I'm your host, Boris Karloff Jr., so sit back, relax, and unwrap the chocolate-covered finger of a man named Clark as we discuss the 1993 witchy adventure Hocus Pocus. that Rock didn't live to have a cameo account. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine? We would have done it by now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We would just have videos of him individually berating all of us. <laughs> and he wouldn't even be one of those D-list celebrities who claims that, like, they're doing it, like, donating the money to charity, like Nikki Blonsky or whatever. He would just straight up... <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think Rock ever smoked marijuana? Yes. Yeah? Absolutely. Funky Rock. Probably with his son. Oh, that's true. I forgot about all of his deadbeat children. That's sad. <laughs> Well, we're here to talk about another Disney icon. Oh, come on. It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Max, I'm not kidding this time. It's time to go. Max, no! Uh Uh-oh. Hi, welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Tiff, and this week we are talking about the 1993 Disney film Hocus Pocus, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Candice. Hi! And Amelia. Hello! One of these days I'm gonna say g'day, even though I've never said it before in my life, as a greeting. Get us those lucrative overseas Australian listeners. I don't know how lucrative they can be when they can't access half of the things that sponsor podcasts. I mean... Are you descended from penal colonists, Amelia? No. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Uh, My dad is Sri Lankan, so they came over on a boat in the 60s. And my mother's family were Irish. They came as free settlers sort of, what, three generations ago, I think? I don't know. Speaking of settlers... In lands that they took without any consideration for the people who might have been there beforehand, uh, we're talking about Hocus Pocus today, which begins in colonial America. It's Salem 1693, I believe. I think it's literally 300 years exactly prior. Well, it, it basically starts with the uh, character Thackeray Binks, which is a terrible, terrible name, um, waking from his slumber with his kid sister being taken to the witch's house and they're gonna eat her so they have eternal life or some shit. All witches have the same ends, I believe. But I think the thing that gets me most about this opening is that the ADR, I like, I know that his voice is dubbed because, spoiler alert, Thackeray is a cat for most of the rest of the movie. 
So a voice actor does his part, but it's just so glaringly obvious. It's like, why why on earth did you decide this? What was so wrong with the actor's voice that they couldn't use his voice? That's a really good question. Um, I'm going to guess it's because kids suck at acting. Well, that's not necessarily true because all the other kid actors in this are actually pretty good. I do have an answer to okay. this. The guy who did Binks' voice for most of the movie... Uh, was talking about it and said that human Binks's voice was too like contemporary for the role of Binks, which is interesting because this is someone who's famous also for being the voice of like Max <laughs> Goof. It's like he's got the <laughs> single most nineties voice known to man. But oh, I guess uh, man. yeah, human Binks was just too like too hip. <laughs> so wait, so human Binks is no, is no. Max? Cat no, 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 no. A oh, voice Binks. Voice Binks is Max Goof. Oh, He's also fuck. Tino from The Weekenders. Ah! He <laughs> didn't you know that, Tim? <laughs> I think I knew that at some point, and then I just repressed the knowledge. I feel like the Tino thing sounds familiar. Yeah. So somehow, according to him, the voice of Human Max was too contemporary, too '90s, but his own voice was deemed acceptable. <laughs> Thou art a mere sprig of a girl. Liar. But I shall be a sprig forever once I suck the life out of all the children in Salem. Let's brew another batch. You hag! There are not enough children in the world to make thee young and beautiful. It is quite egregious to see the ADR. I'm just like, whoa, they're not even trying to make it fit what his mouth is doing. Well, okay, and so then the, the sisters, Sanderson, end up getting they're hanged for the murder of emily banks and the disappearance of thackeray banks and then thackeray is a cat and he's coming up to his dad and like rubbing his leg and being like hey dad it's me i'm a, I'm a cat and then it's like go away foul beast his persona gets rejected are by we his meant dad. to believe that thackeray cannot speak until later because why didn't he just say, hey, dad, it's me. I'm a cat now. Um, I never thought about that. I never that thought ever. about that. I feel like that would probably just get you grounded <laughs> in a sack in Colonial <laughs> Salem. I feel like if a cat started talking, you'd just be lit on fire. Yeah, I feel like Thackeray Binks, like, keeps the ability to talk too much in the bag. Like, a lot of things would have been solved if he had just been talking from the outset. I have a lot of problems with the way in which Banks withholds his 300 years of Earth uh, yeah, knowledge I know. over the course <laughs> of this plot. I do have a it lot of It seems like he should be a little bit more helpful and a little less judgmental. But anyway. Uh, then we cut to the present day, circa 1993, and we meet our hero, uh, Max Dennison, who has recently relocated to Salem from laid-back, chill Los Angeles. With all his tie-dye and his angry drums. His tie-dye, his Nikes, his love for rap singing, as they refer to it <laughs> at one point. And uh, he's having a little bit of trouble integrating into village life in Salem. Aha. Uh-huh. We seem to have a skeptic in our midst. Mr. Dennison, would you care to share your California laid-back tie-dye point of view? It's Halloween. Max is a little angsty because he doesn't want to have to spend Halloween with his little sister, Danny. Uh, he wants to be send it, spending it uh, chasing hot babes like Allison, who's this girl in his class, who comes from an old Salem family, yada, 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 whatever. Anyway, then they end up going to the witch's house, the Sanderson house, and they end up invoking this ancient evil because Max, who is a virgin, lights the black flame candle, the virgin lit the candle, they come back to life, 
and then a, a cat's there and the cat is talking and then they just get engaged in a lot of bullshit involving others like a mummy zombie guy um there is a skeleton band uh max's mom is dressed like madonna it just it has a very it's a very complex plot it's essentially them trying to stop the Sanderson sisters from eating all the children in Salem and becoming immortal. To do that, they steal her book because apparently she never learned by heart the potion to make them immortal, which I think is something I'd want to learn up top. I'd be like, just memorize that. Uh, like I'd memorize my phone number or something. But she needs the book, apparently, because it's a very difficult potion. And yeah, they essentially, it's like a cat and mouse game. The whole rest of the movie until they finally defeat them, which you know it was obvious that they would, because apparently, according to Disney, children are good at everything, which is just not true. So, <laughs> the thing I was most surprised to learn in researching this movie, and we were originally going to do this as just a bonus episode, but then I started some like cursory reading and realized there was a lot more going on than I suspected. Uh, this movie took eight years to go into production. It was conceived in 1984. It was... Fuck me! <laughs> it was essentially a bedtime story that producer David Kirshner came up with for his daughter. Did he hate his daughter? Imagine like, oh yeah, these witches are going to come and eat you if you don't go to sleep. All right, good night. And then just leaving. Well, the way he tells it, they were sitting outside. He saw a black cat walk by and he kind of spun up the story, right? And uh, the original story focused mainly just on the colonial era boy trying to save his sister from the witches and they turn him into a cat is like punishment for eternity pretty heavy fucking story he expanded upon the story he turned it into a short story which he published in and this is 100% true Muppet Fuck Magazine which is oh man a very real publication that ran quarterly from 1983 to 1989 uh and i guess the story had some kind of great reception in muppet magazine i don't know how great it could have been because i don't know how many people were subscribing to well muppet enough magazine. for them to release it quarterly yeah the great reception was that fozzie bear called him personally <laughs> No, Fozzie, do not answer that telephone. Oh, but Kermit, all these terrific, funny things happen when I do answer it. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that, Fozzie. Is there no end to this running gag? (laughs) How much would an issue of Muppet Magazine go for now? Oh, God, I wonder. Let's see. I'm going to have a quick look now. Talk amongst yourselves. What's everyone's favorite Muppet? Don't make me choose. This is a point of contention with Todd. Todd makes fun of my puppet thing, but Tiff loves Muppets, so... I do, I do love A little bit of a pot kettle black situation there. <laughs> Sorry. Well, what's yours, Candace? Um, probably Gonzo. Probably Gonzo. I had to... If I had to pick. Since you're making me pick. You're making us pick. We just turned it back on you. Um, it looks like they're only going for $14 Australian. Fuck this off. Is a- <laughs> Australian. So it'd probably be like $10 USD. <laughs> um, this is a, like a vintage, it says, 1984 Muppet magazine. <laughs> we could buy the whole back, the whole back Yeah, run. we could buy the whole fucking catalog. All the back issues. Wow, shit. Maybe we should. Maybe that would be our first investment. It doesn't look like it would be a very good investment considering they haven't fucking... You know, at one point people didn't realize that Action Comics number one was going to be worth anything. And... <laughs> Yeah, but it's worth something now. These aren't worth anything now. Yeah, was Action Comics worth anything 20 years after it was first published? Probably. 
<laughs> well, anyway, let's get back into it. You told us to talk amongst ourselves. Yeah, while well, we were waiting, now so we don't need to wait anymore. Myself. So <laughs> shut up. Uh, at this time, Kirshner was working on An American Tale, the 1986 Don Bluth directed animated film from Steven Spielberg's production company Amblin Entertainment. An excellent movie. Kirshner created the concept and characters for that movie, and it was while he was in Spielberg's general orbit that he met screenwriter Mick Garris. Uh, Garris was working on Spielberg's NBC science fiction anthology series Amazing Stories which ran from 1985 to 1987. And just a little side note for Amelia, apparently the concept for Batteries Not Included was originally Fuck intended as an off. Amazing Stories script. <laughs> Spielberg loved it so much, he decided to expand it into a feature-length film. It really didn't deserve to be a feature-length film. <laughs> it was truly insane. I cannot describe to you how insane Batteries Not Included is as a concept let alone a full-length film. The residents of 817 East 8th Street are about to lose everything they have. What do you mean those tenants are still in there? Tonight. I'll have them out by tonight. Nothing in this world can save them. Nothing but a miracle. Steven Spielberg presents a Matthew Robbins film. Welcome to America. Spaceships from a very small planet. Very small. This is history. Machines that reproduce themselves. I like being a family again. What the hell is that? It's them, the little guys. I don't know how you got here or why you picked us. Somebody's helping them. Somebody's bringing them together. Is that why you're here? Batteries Not Included, starring Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. Yeah, he's hanging out around all these Spielberg people. He meets Mick Garris, and they start working on making a script out of his short story from Muppet Magazine. Garris was responsible for beefing up the script, expanding on the characters. He developed the Billy Butcherson angle of the plot. The script Kirshner and Garris came up with was apparently somewhat darker than the final product. According to Garris, quote, My original draft and the approach David and I had started with was about 12-year-olds rather than high schoolers. For me, Halloween is its most potent at that age. That awkward step between child and maturity when that dark holiday is truly a turning point in the process of growing up. Like Stand By Me, it felt more deeply rooted in life at that age. And although we had always intended to make it playfully creepy, what I had originally written was a few degrees darker and a little less slapstick. So this is the version of the script, then titled Halloween House, which is not great, that Kirshner and Garris pitched to both Disney and Spielberg. Kirshner went all out for the Disney pitch. He decorated the conference room with brooms and an Electrolux vacuum hanging from the ceiling (laughs) and a cauldron full of dry ice surrounded by candy corn on the table. Terrible candy choice, in my opinion. Uh, His goal was to evoke the sights and smells of childhood Halloweens, which apparently worked, because after the meeting, a Disney executive followed him to his car and said, quote, don't take it anywhere else. We want to do it. Bear in mind, this is 1984, and the film is not made until 1993. See, this is where I'll try and reel it in, but um, this is why we cannot abide Disney building a media empire as they are, and we should be taking steps to remove the incorporation that they have 
and their control over media. That's just a note for the listeners to be aware and be active and don't sign up to Disney+. Plus. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. It's interesting how all antitrust legislation and judicial, I don't know, standards, I guess, judicial precedent ever applied to the movie industry is just apparently not applicable here that's it's so interesting it's like well i don't know stripping mgm of the low theater chain but disney's allowed to you know swallow up the whole industry yeah i know it it's so like they were like oh bill gates you're not allowed to have fucking anything we'll take you to court and then suddenly bill gates can't have fucking microsoft installed on every computer but disney certainly can have all of the simpsons back catalog and that's just fine it's very bad how we say it? I don't know. I just think it's people are all too complacent with the... F- people are super complacent. With that and, you know, like, what is it? Comcast and whatever yeah. it is joining together. And no one's willing to... It's so funny because just not that long ago, I mean, 30 Rock had the whole Cable Town plot line. And it seems like since then, nobody's been willing to make a point about Comcast and um, other media monopolies like it. It's very interesting. But, oh, I was just going to say, um, I was reading a thing about how um, owners of repertory theaters are running into trouble because the Fox catalog used to be easy and accessible to get prints of for screenings of classic movies. And how with the Disney takeover, it's just become an absolute nightmare. And so it's like, great, thanks for killing off one of the last few vestigial forms of communal entertainment that celebrates the whole history of fucking film disney thanks thanks for fucking nothing killing off repertory houses i have a political issue with that it probably didn't hurt that at his pitch kirshner also pointed out to the disney execs that the increasingly lucrative halloween industry had grown to three billion by the mid-1980s so he definitely appealed to uh, a certain facet of the disney you know yeah attitude it's the facet of disney where their eyes like have dollar signs in them and go ka-ching yeah. that's the what he was appealing to um i think this is probably a good time to talk about the fact that um hocus pocus really strikes up a vision of halloween and a feeling of halloween that I can understand, even though I've never experienced it in my life, because Halloween is not a thing here as it is in North America. Um, and so I think it's it's really interesting how well they got that feeling and how well it's exploited in the film, that even I, who have never been exposed to that kind of trick-or-treating culture or that kind of fall seasonal feeling can really identify with it even though like it's not something that's intrinsically linked to my childhood yeah it's something that kirshner actually i do believe is very passionate about like everything i've read or seen him speaking about it he really did care about sort of capturing that vibe right so i mean i don't mean to like totally put him on blast i guess i'm putting disney more on blast uh but yeah, it, it was definitely intentional, I think, to make kind of the ultimate Halloween movie that hadn't been made yet, and Halloween was becoming more and more commercialized, which is not necessarily a good thing, but, you know, that's a... It's how you get a movie made. I mean... It's how you get a movie made. And he's just a man with a vision up against one of the most effective and brutal and efficient corporate machines in the history yeah. uh, of... I don't know, America, the world, world. the universe. <laughs> um, no, it's it's interesting to me. I, I think it's interesting that despite the fact that Hocus Pocus was not 
necessarily well received um initially it's become such a fundamental traditional part of the holiday in a way that i really don't think any other movie is i think that for american children and i can only speak to america because that's where i live i think for american kids hocus pocus is the most enduring watchable part of of media consumption during the halloween season it is exactly it reminds me a lot of a christmas story for something that at the time was not uh, i guess as remarkable as, as it's come to be but a christmas story has become compulsive holiday viewing with 24 7 you know marathons leading up to christmas and everybody can recite a christmas story line for line and hocus pocus really occupies a, a special I'm going to say it, niche in the culture with that exact reason. I think especially for somebody of my generation, I was born in 1995. And for I I could probably recite this movie by heart doesn't mean I can recount the plot by heart, oddly (laughs) enough, but I do know all the dialogue. So Spielberg had also been receptive to the Halloween house pitch, but he ultimately chose not to get involved when he learned that it was going to be a Disney picture. Uh, At this point, he considered Disney a direct rival to Amblin, obviously. The project settled in at Disney and was initially intended as what would later be termed like a Disney Channel original movie. That wasn't really a thing yet, but they wanted to make it for TV. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was chairman of Walt Disney Studios at the time, an interesting figure. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> while he was on board with the picture, he felt Kirshner and Garris's screenplay was too dark, so it passed through the hands of a dozen writers over the course of eight years before it was finally deemed ready to produce. In 1992, with the screenplay finally ready to go, director Kenny Ortega was brought in to helm the project. Ortega is primarily a choreographer, and he got his start in the late 70s working under Gene Kelly on Xanadu. (laughs) Auspicious beginnings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And he later choreographed a number of 80s movies, including Dirty Dancing, which makes sense, but also St. Elmo's Fire and Pretty in Pink. What? Which aren't movies I really think of having any need for choreography. I mean, I can see Pretty in Pink, but Sonoma's fine. He also worked on music videos such as Madonna's Material Girl, Styx's Mr. Roboto, and uh, Billy Squire's widely mocked Rock Me Tonight, which oh. he blames for ruining his career. <laughs> ah. along with a number of tours for uh, artists like Michael Jackson, Gloria Estefan, and Cher. So his output as a director of feature films is less expansive. It began with Newsies. It includes all the High School Musical and Descendants films, as well as The (gasps) Cheetah Girls 2. Oh, gems on gems. The man made Hocus Pocus, so we have to give him that. With Ortega on board, it was time to think about casting. The biggest name in the film is obviously Bette Midler, who came to prominence as a singer in the 70s and had received an Academy Award nomination for her performance in 1979's The Rose, but had suffered something of a career slump until her reemergence as the star of several Touchstone Pictures productions beginning in the late 1980s. Touchstone was the brand Disney used to release slightly more adult-oriented fare beginning in 1984, and Midler's with Touchstone, films like The R-Rated Ruthless People and Outrageous Fortune, and of course the PG-13 Beaches, which spawned her wildly successful single Wind Beneath My Wings, turned her into a sort of unexpected new face of Disney. She had a reputation, obviously, for being sort of body and risque in the kind of campy Mae Westy sort of way, and was nicknamed Bathhouse Betty in honor of her penchant for singing in gay bathhouses in the 70s. So the association with Disney, although uh, albeit through Touchstone, was a bit of a surprise. In her own words, quote, 
Ironic, ain't it? But I love Disney's view of the world, even though it was a narrow one. It did a service, yet a disservice too. Let's face it, if Walt Disney were alive today, he wouldn't let me through the front gate of the studio. That's a fair assessment. Damn. <laughs> Beth Midler is interesting. She definitely, she's just, like you mentioned Mae West, but um, she had kind of uh, roots in that whole uh, like live theatrical tradition that a lot of people had kind of forsaken by that point. She actually, sometimes she would sing things um, that Elsa Lanchester had done while performing. If you bring up fucking puppets, I will kill you. <laughs> At the Turnabout Theater in West Hollywood, <laughs> uh, uh, the puppet, the puppet performance. Oh, you fucking... Um, no, but but Bet, Bet enjoyed uh, songs like uh, Miss, Mrs. Pettibone's Chandelier, which was an Elsa Lanchester song about a woman who kills her husband because he can't afford to consider consistently redecorate her home in the way that she desires that doesn't really have anything to do with anything but uh you just wanted to talk about puppets is what you fucking wanted to do it's relevant kind of it's not it's not at all that has a rich rich background in performing and she's very uh literate in terms of stage tradition is what i was trying to say there if you would allow me to interject a little bit of culture into this hocus pocus podcast you absolutely weren't saying that but anyway when bet medler expressed an interest in the script things finally got going literally eight years after they started and midler's star power bumped it up from television film to theatrical release midler took on the role of winifred sanderson leader of the three sanderson sisters the part of mary sanderson was originally offered to rosie o'donnell who turned it down because she didn't want to play an evil witch Okay. I mean, I can see why. I mean, it's probably like leading to a lot of um, unkind comparisons. So it ultimately went to Kathy Najimy, fresh off her role opposite Whoopi Goldberg in 1992's Sister Act. And perhaps most notable to me personally is the voice of Peggy Hill. Happiness. 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 I did it. Ovaries, uvula, uterus, vagina! Uh, however, Najimi too had concerns about the feminist implications of playing a witch and went so far as to consult Gloria Steinem before taking the part. <laughs> Steinem advised Najimi to take the role, arguing that playing a child-eating witch was actually empowering because such myths could be traced back to the spinster midwives who performed abortions for colonial women. Oh, man. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot to take in right now. <laughs> she created and produced an off-Broadway play about the life of Gloria Steinem. I love this. This is so Oh, my God, really? Yeah. How Are they best friends? How close are they? Well, apparently Gloria Steinem officiated Kathy's wedding, so I'm going to guess they're I'm gonna guess they're buds. When I read that bit about her consulting Gloria Steinem, I thought it was like a whole big thing, but I guess maybe she just picked up the phone and like called a buddy. Yeah, just... yeah I guess. <laughs> so the role of the third Sanderson sister, Sarah, went to pre-sex in the city, Sarah Jessica Parker. Parker took the part mainly for the opportunity to work with Bette Midler, and both Parker and Najimi were huge Midler fans. As a child actress starring in Annie on Broadway in the late 70s, Parker used to eavesdrop on Midler's sessions with their shared vocal coach, while Najimi, by her own account, this is gonna get crazy, apparently once attempted to crash Midler's dressing room at the Hollywood Bowl, broke through the gate at Midler's apartment to leave her a note, <laughs> dressed as a bunny to deliver a singing telegram to Midler in Los Angeles, and papered her walls with clippings of Midler. 
I want to assume these are all jokes. The fact that Bette Midler wasn't skinned alive on the set of Hocus Pocus <laughs> suggests that they were. But I had to bring it up. Uh, these are all stories that Kathy and Jimmy offers up herself. This was like a really, I mean, it sounds insane now um, because like celebrities have like bodyguards who are like armed. But this was like a real thing that people used to do, the celebrity hunting. Um, yeah. And it's interesting how like vulnerable celebrities were like when my mom was in was she in high school i think she was in high school um they used to drive up to scott bayo's house and just like wait outside (laughs) and then her friend would like leave notes on his car be like hi it's me i'm watching you (laughs) you know and this was just a thing that people did all the time so it's almost like it's still very funny to me that kathy Najimi is one of these stalkers evidently or at least jokingly alluding to being but um, it was very much, like, a part of the pastime. I think the internet has done away with that and that sense of, like, closeness and parasocial relationship with celebrities. People feel like they can get close to somebody like Bette Midler because they follow her on Twitter, whereas before that, the only opportunity was to try to break into her home. <laughs> it does remind me a lot of Ronk at Jack Nicholson's house. <laughs> <laughs> um, put in a bit from try- the sizzle reel, please. Please. <laughs> Just put it out. Oh, God. Oh, fuck. Hi, is Jack home? Uh, no, he sure isn't. He's out of the country. Oh, I, I figured as much. Well, tell him that Mickey Rooney came by. Oh, I sure will. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Sure he's out of the country. All these people that are important are out of the country. Um, we, we should specify Ronk is our affectionate nickname for Mickey Rooney. I think we our have comrade in arms. I think we have dropped that nickname before with no context um, yeah. on the podcast, but we'll just clarify it here. It is Mickey Rooney. Um, Rest in power. of the stage and screen. Uh, in addition to the three witches, Hocus Pocus also stars three child actors. Omri Katz is Max Dennison, Thora Birch is Danny Dennison, and Vanessa Shaw is Allison Watts. The casting process for the role of Max was seemingly endless. Ortega compared it to the casting call for Newsies and claimed that they saw over 600 actors. One of the hundreds of potential Maxes was Leonardo DiCaprio, Ugh. who was offered what he described as more money than I ever dreamed of, but turned it down in favor of what's eating Gilbert Grape. On this decision, DiCaprio said, quote, I don't know where the hell I got the nerve. You live in an environment where you're influenced by people telling you to make a lot of money and strike while the iron's hot, but if there's one thing I'm very proud of, it's being a young man who is sticking to my guns. This is, in my opinion, like the most boring thing anyone's ever said. I'm glad he didn't take the role. He was sucked. Read him for I mean, filth. Wow. Damn him. I mean, well, also, like, he's not making good decisions now with all those fucking 25 year olds he's dating. 25? Try 19. 19 year olds. Ugh. Isn't the current girlfriend born after Titanic came out? Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Gross. Also, I mean, oh, little Leo making good decisions, but uh, yeah, because like growing pains was a really good decision. But I mean, yeah. career wise, Gilbert Grape obviously did more for him. Yeah, but I like who's sitting down and just saying, yeah, I'm going to watch who's what's eating Gilbert Grape, whereas I'm happily going to watch Hocus Pocus every single year at Halloween. You watch what's eating Gilbert Grape once or multiple times if you have to study it for school like I had to. But that's it. You never want to see it again. There are a lot of people out there who will watch every possible incarnation of Mr. Donald Depp for... Donald Depp? 
completely beyond <laughs> my realm of comprehension. I don't get that at all. But there's probably someone out there who runs a Tumblr blog about their love for Gilbert Grape. So if you're that person, I'm sorry, but you should delete this episode right now. It's not going to get any nicer. <laughs> Just wait until we do a movie with either John Depp or fucking Leonardo DiCaprio. Is there it. a John Depp movie worth talking about? Oh, Ed Wood. Oh, fuck. I love Ed Wood. Um, I just, like, invoked my own yeah. personal Achilles heel, <laughs> which is biopics of forgotten movie personalities. So I can't, I can't. Sorry, Jonald. You're one good movie. I'm not sorry to Jonald. I'm sorry to myself. Okay, continue. Sorry. Back to Omri Katz. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, in the end, the starring role of Max went to Omri Katz, who had previously played J.R.'s son on Dallas. Eight-year-old Thora Birch was more quickly cast as Max's sister, Danny, as was Vanessa Shaw in the role of Max's love interest, Allison. Uh, Max's father was played by Charles Rocket, notable for being fired from Saturday Night Live after he said the word fuck on air, coincidentally, during a Dallas-themed sketch. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> wow. And uh, Max's teacher, actually, this was really interesting to me, I didn't know this, was played by Kathleen Freeman, a veteran actress who also portrayed Lena Lamont's diction coach, Phoebe Dinsmore, in Singing in the Rain. So that's another Gene Kelly connection. Oh, wow. Strangely wow. enough. Now, ta te ti to tu ta te ti to tu No, no, Miss Lamont, round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 small world this industry is a small world i gotta say though um omri katz turning 40 was like my first like real like reckoning with the passage of time (laughs) because it's not until fucking max from hocus pocus (laughs) is middle-aged that you realize oh (laughs) fuck oh time just keep marching on baby that was actually a real like quarter-life crisis moment for me i have to admit that's horrible So, six-foot-four contortionist Doug Jones was cast in the role of zombie Billy Butcherson. Jones would later go on to star in a lot of those sort of lanky makeup and prosthetics, you know, horror and science fiction roles like the crazy goat bitch in Pan's Labyrinth, uh, the fish boy in Shape of Water. But at this point, his most high-profile work had been as the moon-headed Mac Tonight in the 80s McDonald's commercial (laughs) co-opted by white supremacists. For some reason, Max Tonight <laughs> and Billy Butcherson is not a leap in my mind, but Max Knight and the fish dick is just such... <laughs> <laughs> That's excruciating. His own retracting wow. Max Tonight. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Wow. I wonder if he was also, like, Max Headroom. But not, like, the real Max Headroom. The one that, like, interrupted TV signals in fucking... <laughs> Has anyone ever investigated that possibility on our new spin-off podcast? Finally, the role of Thackeray Banks was betrayed by two human actors, several black cats, and more than a dozen animatronics. Banks in his human form was played by Sean Murray, who is a teen actor in the, like, JTT Devon Sawa Tiger Bee mold, outfitted very dashingly in the puffy shirt from Seinfeld. I wrote that one down. <laughs> <laughs> 
but all of his dialogue was dubbed by Jason Marsden, known to millennials everywhere as Eric Matthews' small friend in some early episodes of Boy Meets World. Uh, and as we said already, Max Goof in a Goofy movie and an extremely Goofy movie and Tino Tonatini in The Weekenders and just like five zillion other voice roles since the mid-90s. Nothing but respect for my president. <laughs> Uh, Binks in cat form was primarily played by real cats. Including the bit where it gets hit by the bus? Is that a real cat <laughs> Disney would. <laughs> Disney totally would. Binks, look out! Whoa, speed bump! Oh my god. It's all my fault. Max, it's not your fault. Look! Max. I hate it when that happens. What? I told you I can't die. Kenny Ortega. Kenny Ortega himself is so decided excited to be able to direct a feature film. He's just like cats in front of well, I mean, there's a oh, lot of scenes take in that, the movie Billy Squire. where it's like, that is very obviously not a real cat. Like, the first bit where he turns into a cat, that is not a real cat. That is CGI. I'm trying to, I'm struggling to see the bits where a real cat would have been used. No, okay, give me this, give me this, okay. So... <laughs> Before we started talking about throwing cats in front of buses, um, Binks in cat form was primarily played by real cats. There were animatronics involved, but for the most part, he was a real little guy with a computer animated face. So the animation was done by the special effects studio Rhythm and Hughes and was actually very advanced for the time. Excuse me, their name is Rhythm and Hughes? (laughs) Rhythm and Hughes Studios, Wait, so it was like an animated face on a real cat's body? Yes. So did they make the cat wear one of those like little masks that they have to wear with all the dots on it or what? There's actually, (laughs) there are a couple of episodes of this 90s Discovery Channel show called Movie Magic where they show how they did it. And yeah, they just, uh, they just put the talking face on his face and he was talking. Today... Bert Terreri and the Rhythm and Hughes CGI team are working with associate producer Jay Height and animation supervisor Chris Bailey to design a realistic, computer-generated cat head for the comedy fright film Hocus Pocus. And in a Hollywood first, they're blending that CGI head onto the body of a real cat in a way that will allow the cat to talk and act in a totally believable fashion. It's real movie magic is what it is. (laughs) I assumed that they went, like, full, like, Salem Saberhagen. I thought no. it would be a puppet. Yeah, you would. Okay, sorry for thinking of the other most famous talking cat of the 1990s. I apologize. <laughs> In a witchcraft-themed children's <laughs> production, but I thought it was relevant. <laughs> they did have, like, several real cats. They had to wrangle these cats. So Rhythm and Hughes went on to animate more talking animals for Babe in 1995, which won them an Oscar. So I guess they got better. Um, <laughs> is Babe Australian? Babe is Australian, isn't it? I think so. I have. I don't think I've ever seen Babe. I'm gonna be real here. Whoa, that's fucked up. 
Okay. Well, it looks like we're going to have to watch Babe weird. together. There has to be a movie I haven't seen, I think. is, is what <laughs> We've reached a critical mass at a certain point, and I think Babe is just... We have to watch Babe 2 Pig in the City because that's what Ronk is in, right? I like the assumption that I haven't seen Babe 2 Pig in the City. It's a joint production between Australia and the United States. Suck shit. Babe was filmed in Robertson, New South Wales, Australia. Hell yeah. Babe was one of my favorite movies as a child. I love Babe. Okay, so while Binx's facial animation was computer generated, most of the effects in the film are practical. Most of the flying was done by the actresses using wire work for long shots and teeter rigs for close ups. Oh, so they can't really fly? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> not as impressive as I thought. I mean... The wire work used the same techniques developed by Disney special effects artist Danny Lee for Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and Pete's Dragon, which is another wrong connection that I didn't <laughs> I say. think of until right now. Midler, Jimmy, and Parker all spent hours in extremely uncomfortable harnesses suspended from moving tracks on the ceilings. And God damn it, this is what I've been dreading. Okay... For some wide shots where realism was less of a priority, they used detailed marionettes. Oh, of <laughs> oh sucks to fucking suck, bitch. Welcome. <laughs> wow. Oh, so proud. Yeah. Uh, those, the show, the Discovery Channel show I talked about gets pretty deep into it. You see the witches, you see them like, or the marionettes, uh, they were very specific about what fabric was used for the outfits on these puppets. It was all very Candace. And I the know... minute they brought out the fucking puppets, I was just <sighs> like, why did I decide to research this one? I know you had to withhold this information in order to make it an effective reveal on the podcast, but it doesn't mean I don't deeply so resent you for hard. sharing this <laughs> Wow, I have to watch that once we're done. Wow. Oh, it was brutal. Uh, There's this one moment where it's like a really wide shot and I knew it was the fucking puppets <laughs> and we were watching the movie like two hours ago and I was like, God damn it. I'm going to have to talk about this. I'm going to have to start puppet discourse. I didn't want to, but I had to. Christ, one of these days we're going to have an episode where we don't let Candace talk about Joel McRae or fucking puppets. I don't know. Well, if you guys <laughs> stop picking movies that have puppets in them and or joel connections i don't know what goes on inside your twisted mind you can make any connection to anything you want on anything we do well the problem is that it really is like six degrees of kevin bacon is kind of the problem here is that because it's just the same 15 fucking people who make movies it's really easy to link them to either puppets or joel so we're gonna have to expand the reach of this podcast to be movies outside of hollywood and just do some fucking Russian propaganda. Soviet training films. Just like fucking Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera. That's the only one we're allowed to fucking cover from this point onwards. That and Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that a lot of those, um, a lot of Soviet silence use a lot of models. Yes. <laughs> so it's a little too puppet adjacent, buddy. <laughs> models and puppets aren't exactly the same thing. They're in the same family. One big, beautiful, blended family. It's a rainbow family. If you guys weren't so fucking homophobic, you'd understand that. <laughs> but whatever. 
In addition to the flying, a lot of prosthetic and special effects work was done with Doug Jones as Billy Butcherson. Jones spent two and a half hours in makeup every day. He wore foam latex over his entire face and neck and a full body suit to create Billy's weird zombie physicality. Uh, Headless Billy was played by stuntwoman Karen Malkus, who stands a foot shorter than Jones. And the commitment to practical effects on Hocus Pocus went so far that in the scene where Billy opens his mouth and moths fly out, those were real moths, which Doug Jones really held in his mouth with the aid of a dental dam to prevent them from accidentally going down his throat. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that one. A dental dam. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Disney's dental dam. That is so... I'm not going to make the joke that I want to make. I can't. I can't do it on a podcast about a children's movie, but... We can all imagine what it is and just sit in how terrible it would have been had you said it. There wasn't much extensive characterization for the witches in the script, so Ortega left it up to the actresses to flesh out their roles as they saw fit. Parker perceived Sarah as the most evil of the three, describing her particular brand of evil as uncalculating and innate rather than learned. She also went through several possible voices for Sarah before settling on the final product, including a typical whispery Marilyn Monroe voice and another... (laughs) This is going to be hard for me to get through... Based on Dana Carvey's George Michael impression as done by an English schoolboy. <laughs> Look at it. Accept it. Look at it, Dennis. Look at my butt. The worst thing you can do is try to ignore it. Yeah, it's a total circle, don't you see? You can't hide from it. Excuse it's me, a force George. to be reckoned with. Accept it before it destroys you. Okay. I take immense issue with the fact <laughs> that you guys take issue with the puppet thing when fucking Dana Carvey has made more appearances on this podcast than... Okay, this one's not my fault. None of it them is. have been our fault. <laughs> we haven't brought him up electively. The Turtle Club sequence shout out. Okay, I brought that up on purpose, but this wasn't my choice. I saw it and I had to say something. That's absolutely terrible. I, again, I didn't know how much more gobsmacked I could continue to be in this episode. <laughs> but for some reason, this particular factoid is really killing me. I had no idea that Sarah Jessica Parker was so fucking, like, method in her... <laughs> And the thing is that I find weird is that they make Sarah, Je- Sarah Jessica Parker's special power being like that she sings to get children to come and, I don't know, get eaten. When, in fact, if this was made now, uh, she'd have to do Fortnite dances. <laughs> So, Najimi, meanwhile, based her characterization of Mary on Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver, a show I am not personally familiar with. God damn it! I don't think it was really a rerun staple in my part of Canada growing up, but uh, Wikipedia describes him as, quote, an archetype for insincere sycophants, so I guess that's where she was going with that one. This is such a weird episode. (laughs) That is such a... Man, next time you're going to tell me that, like, we're going to be watching, like, Shawshank Redemption, it'll be like, oh, Tim Robbins based it on Bob Denver on Dobie Gillis or something, and then I'm just (laughs) going to have to kill myself because that'll be the peak. (laughs) Doug Jones also had a surprising amount of influence over the characterization of Billy Butcherson. When Billy finally breaks the stitches holding his mouth closed and goes off on Winnie, the script originally called for him to call her a bitch rather than a wench, but he objected and wound up basically improvising the dialogue for that scene himself. Centuries to say that. 
there's a lot of content in this movie that's not necessarily child friendly and I just kind of roll with it because my parents took me to see Beavis and Butthead do America when I was four so whatever <laughs> but having the, having the zombie collar a bitch is like heavy duty I mean I guess it was in that period where you know, kids films could be a little bit blue yeah I guess and a lot of people took issue with the um, the whole touchstone move by Disney because they felt like it was going to kind of permeate the approach to the traditional like children's projects at Disney. That was a concern that people in the industry had. And I think you could argue that Disney pre-touchstone would never have greenlit a script that involves a character being called a bitch. It's definitely a post-touchstone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Artifact, as it were. The final component of the production that I want to discuss is the music. Uh, Hocus Pocus is kind of an oddity in that it's a movie starring a singer, directed by a choreographer that is not technically a musical, but of course it features two musical numbers and one of those really bombastic 90s Disney scores. Composer James Horner was originally brought in to score the film, having done previous work with Amblin, including An American Tale, but scheduling conflicts pulled him off the project after writing only a handful of pieces for the movie, uh, the most notable of which is Sarah's Garden of Magic song, The Come All You Children. kind of bails from the project the orchestra is scheduled to record in two weeks and disney has to scramble to get a score written for the entire film uh they wound up going with john debney a composer who'd never scored a major motion picture and whose primary selling point was that he was available last minute uh debney was not without the benefit of nepotism he was the son of a disney producer named lewis debney and basically spent his whole childhood on the disney lot but up to this point, his resume was limited mostly to small-scale TV work and music for some Disney theme park attractions. So not only is this his first major motion picture, but it's a major Disney picture starring Bette Midler, and he has two weeks to score the entire thing. He would write during the day and conduct a 92-piece orchestra at night, aiming to create a score that was eerie and magical without leaning too much into comedy, which he felt would, quote, lead the air out of it. Kind of a hero, I think. Well, I mean, yeah, he came through in the clutch. Really, just like, I know we're anti nepotism, but this is a good example of somebody who um, has actual was able talent. To make it work. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. much like a record scratch. Yeah, that's me. That you're wondering <laughs> how I ended up in this situation <laughs> while he's just like furiously conducting. Excuse me. Um, he. I'm on his Wikipedia page right now because, of course, that's how we we research this podcast exclusively. And um, he also did the score for The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> okay, well, you either, you know, die a hero or live long enough to yourself become the villain, so... No! <laughs> that is so... Wow. 
He also did, okay, Passion of the Christ, Bruce Almighty, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Elf, Sin City, Chicken Little, Liar Liar, Spy Kids, The Scorpion King, The Princess Diaries, and Predators. So basically all the movies we enjoy. <laughs> Elf is a good score. I like the Elf score. Yeah. I can't remember the, sc- this, the score for a movie like Spy Kids or The Princess Diary, but I feel like <laughs> if I heard it, I'd be like, oh, that's, 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 that's good. <laughs> that's good stuff. <sighs> um, oh my god, he worked on cutthroat island oh no oh no that's a bad beginning also jetson's the movie uh i'll be home for christmas oh is that jtt yes that is the jtt i'll be home for christmas my favorite martian the reboot inspector gadget oh god (laughs) the emperor's new groove cats and dogs jimmy neutron snow dogs with cuba gooding jr the hot chick swim fan malibu's (laughs) most wanted looney tunes back in action oh no he did not do the principal score for that that was jerry goldsmith but he is additional music for looney tunes back in action Spider-Man 2, also additional music. Are we going to talk about Looney Tunes back in action on our I Love You, Brendan Fraser series? Um, yes. But wow, what an like illustrious career. Uh, Cheaper by the Dozen 2, uh, Spider-Man 3, also additional music. Evan Almighty, Georgia Rule, The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, additional music. Hotel for Dogs, the Hannah Montana movie. I was going to say... um, Greg Kinnear's in that, but obviously not. That's the other one. Um, Valentine's Day, the terrible um, Gary Marshall movie. Which Gary Marshall is in Hocus Pocus. Yes, and Gary Marshall also directed um, Georgia Rule, so this guy appears to be a frequent Gary Marshall collaborator. SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water. (laughs) The Jungle Book. Ice Age Collision Course. Another fucking Gary Marshall movie, Mother's Day. The Greatest Showman, Dora and the Lost City of Gold. So so he's still going then. He's still fucking going. He also did 27 episodes of A Pup Named Scooby-Doo. I thought you were going to say A Puppet Show. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Tiny Toon Adventures. Is that a Looney Tunes thing? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is a Looney Tunes thing. I Yabba Dabba Doo. Oh, it's a made-for-television Flintstones movie. Okay. Oh, I yabba dabba do. Okay. All right. I think. Okay. I think I know what <laughs> that is. I'm sorry for just reading this guy's Wikipedia page in its entirety, but I'm really. That is a what a career. And this is how it started. And this is how it started. <laughs> See, all it takes is giving some person a chance, and they'll just yes, take off because their father is already a producer yeah. and a known quotient with the company. Just one chance to spread their wings and fly then they'll fly maybe they'll fly too close to the sun when they make passion of the christ but (laughs) they'll come back down again and make looney tunes back in action so it's you know life is a roller coaster evens out that's john debney okay okay ready to go sorry i had a whole ass moment realizing this man has scored every major studio release for the last 25 years (laughs) including the worst mummy movie probably one of the more iconic scenes in the film is midler's performance of i put a spell on you which seems to have been kind of a foregone conclusion like of course there's going to be a big bet midler musical number in this high fantasy family film because how could there not be you know it's like shades of roly-poly and pillow talk sorry i'm losing my voice but a less truly horrendous song choice so I actually did go down a bit of a hole. I have to share some things with you. Bear with me. I'm going to get to the, my main point here. I Put a Spell on You was originally written and performed in 1956 by Screamin' Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. 
Hawkins began his career as an aspiring opera singer, but shifted to blues when that didn't pan out. And this piece in particular was intended as a love ballad, but when they went in to record, the band got absolutely wasted (laughs) and ended up recording this completely insane song that's like really kind of bizarre in the context of the times you know it's kind of exists out of time and place i had to google when it came out because nothing about it says 1956 it's mostly just hawkins like wailing and uh, it has this really menacing quality to it and became sort of a novelty song hawkins would like perform with a cape on and come out of a coffin on stage and shit um it was banned on a lot of radio stations for being too fucking weird and what i found interesting and why i had to talk about screaming jay hawkins for a second is um he claims to have fathered 75 children in 70 years on earth what so that's nice Man, so I'm going to bet that unlike Max, he at 15 was not a virgin. <laughs> I wonder which Hollywood person has the most kids. Is it is it Marlon Brando? Oh, God, probably. Tony Quinn was having, he fathered his last child. I think he was like 82 or something like Jesus that. Jesus Christ. Which I think would be around the time when he made uh, Ghosts Don't Do That, starring <laughs> Bo Derek and featuring uh, an appearance, which I withheld from my co-host while we were watching uh donald trump oh um, fuck yeah <laughs> that was a good bit but wow no anyway i'm just who has 75 kids in hollywood probably like the osmonds <laughs> <laughs> certainly have 75 teeth in their mouths <laughs> ow okay yeah no this is a good scene this is a really good sequence The Hocus Pocus rendition of I Put a Spell on You, of course, has very little in common with Hawkins' version. It reminds me of more like the Pointer Sisters, like Jump for Your Love or whatever. Also, this scene contains a Candace-adjacent factoid that a number of the costumes being worn in the audience were taken from the 1985 made-for-TV version of Alice in Wonderland, including the March Hare costume originally worn by Roddy McDowell. Oh, wow. I kept an eye out when we were watching today, and I saw it. I saw that fucking weird little rabbit hat. Because he's such a small man. Wow, that's cool. That's really cool. So despite the fact that David Kirshner had sold the project in 1984 largely by reminding Disney execs of the rapidly expanding Halloween industry that they had yet to capitalize upon, when it came time to finally put out Hocus Pocus, they inexplicably settled on a summer release date, (laughs) July 16th, 1993, which would have been an absolutely baffling choice in virtually any year, but it was particularly deranged in the summer of 1993 as they opened directly against Free Willy and a month after fucking Jurassic Park. So to the surprise of absolutely nobody, it completely fizzled out at the box office. It grossed just $10 million more than its $28 million budget and pretty immediately fell into obscurity. Uh, it also took a beating from the critics. Our buddy Roger Ebert described the three witches as having behavior patterns and decibel levels rather than personalities. Sounds like us. But luckily he's our buddy, so he wouldn't say anything that mean That's about so us. That's so true. We're, we're good friends. Good friend of the pod. Friend of the show, Robert E. Treachery. <laughs> 
The Associated Press's Patricia Bibby wrote, quote, The only real curses in this film will be yours as you walk up the aisle to leave. Well, sucks for her since her last name sounds like something a baby spits up on. So, how then did Hocus Pocus become such a beloved Halloween staple? Most of its resurgence can be credited to home video and television airings, in particular its airings on ABC Family or um, Freeform or whatever the fuck they're calling it. Now it's ABC Spark here in Canada, so I don't fuck if I know. And God, it was probably Fox Family at the time, too. Yeah. Which is funny now when you look back on it, now that Disney fucking owns Fox. So yeah, that's founded a new loyal following. Whenever they discuss the film, the cast and crew always seem shocked by how many Hocus Pocus devotees were either babies or not alive in 1993, which certainly describes every host of this podcast. I mean, we were alive in 1993. Sorry. I said babies, too. I would have been one year old. That's, That's a, a baby. baby. <laughs> That's how old a baby is, Amelia. <laughs> okay, okay. So... <laughs> You telling me that like I don't know what a baby is. <laughs> You're the one who said that, oh, I'd be a year old. No, I like, was you saying don't know that how I was alive. Is. I was just saying that I was alive when it came out. Yeah, Tiff said babies or not born yet. And you said, oh, I was a year old. Like you, like you thought like that doesn't, that's past baby <laughs> age. Like you'd already graduated baby dumb and we're well on to you know, young adulthood or something. Well, you don't know how far advanced I was at one year old, so how do you know? Also, I think you were a young adult for the first time when you saw Hocus Pocus, right? Yeah. Because Hocus Pocus didn't hit Australia, didn't take yeah. Australia by storm. Yeah. As I explained earlier, Halloween's not a thing here, so... So I don't think Amelia saw Hocus Pocus. So I guess in a way, you know, she might have been a baby when it came out, but spiritually, <laughs> she could not reckon with its powers until she was an adult. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's the same for other Australian people, but like, yeah, it's just, it's certainly not a film that was on heavy rotation on TV here. And also you got to think, uh, we're in a different season at that time of year than you guys are. So it's not a seasonal film that would come on. Would you guys be more prepared for this movie in the summer of 1993? Because wouldn't it be cold there? It would be winter here, yeah. Yeah, so you guys would actually have a more accurate reflection of the mood of Hocus Pocus than we did here in North America. Yeah, probably, but like, considering back then films took six months to come out here. Yeah, because they had to fly it by carrier pigeon. Yeah, they fucking came <laughs> on a boat or something, apparently. Um, we would have got it in our summer, so it would have been just as irrelevant. In addition to TV, there's also probably something to be said about the ever-growing presence of Halloween in popular culture and as an industry. Kirshner was right in 1984 when he identified and latched onto Halloween as a moneymaker. Since then, Halloween spending has only grown, and along with it, the appetite for Halloween-themed media. To that end, in my opinion, few films embody the spirit of Halloween, the sort of whimsical but still menacing and a little uneasy feeling, as well as Hocus Pocus, which I guess is a point we've already made. But uh, I suspect we'd all be better off if this were the kind of movie Walt Disney Pictures was still interested in making. For me, Halloween as, as a concept tackled in the media is really only successfully done by like very few films. There's this, there's uh, It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. There's Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which is a different <laughs> take on Halloween. <laughs> there are very few movies to me that, that evoke 
Halloween and the Halloween season and the particular experience of North American childhood in the yeah. way that this movie does. This movie feels like it, it, it's interesting watching it as an adult because more than anything, it feels like being a kid again. And Disney's completely lost the plot on how to evoke that fucking feeling. I think they lost the plot on evoking any, feelings. any feelings. Yeah. Except for resentment. Like vaguely dystopian, not even vaguely, just dystopian terror. Disney also doesn't understand like what makes Disney like Disney. Like Disney does this whole, um, what's the word? It's not like a retrofit. That's obviously not the word, but uh, you know when they when they they refashion a theme park for like a for like a holiday season. Anyway, whatever they do this thing um, for Halloween at Disney, where they turn the park into like a Halloween theme, which is fine. But then they take the only spooky ride in the whole park, which has its own narrative and characterization and everything distinct to Disneyland, and they turn it into the fucking Nightmare Before Christmas. So it spends the entirety of the Halloween season as a fucking Christmas movie that's not even a Disney production. And that really grinds my gears, (laughs) because I hate the idea that there's like six months out of the year when I can't go see my favorite ride at Disneyland, the Haunted Mansion, because it's some fucking hot topic, 14-year-old tween god bullshit and it's full of kids who have like wallets with chains on them and i hate tim burton but you love ed wood. but you love ed wood i love ed wood <laughs> because it's like how tarantino made once upon a time in hollywood and it was really good and i'm never gonna give him credit for anything else he's ever done in his life that's how i feel about ed wood we have to talk about some of our favorite moments we have to you know i was gonna say one of my favorite moments is when danny asks max if he could accompany her to this halloween party at city hall and he goes you're eight go by yourself <laughs> In this town they have just moved to where she knows no one. Isn't it that she's asking him to go trick-or-treating, not to go to the party? I thought she wanted to go to the party. We literally just watched this movie. Well, because she mentions City Hall. Or maybe she says the par- her parents are at the party Yeah, I think City he's Hall. like, why can't mom and dad take you trick-or-treating? And she's like, they're at the party Oh, at they're, they're Yeah, they're getting crunk. Okay, whatever. So she's saying, anyway, the point is, <laughs> is that Max tells this small child, you're eight, go by yourself. Guess what? You're going to take you trick-or-treating. Not this year, Danny. Mom said you have to. Well, she can take you. She and Dad are going to the party at Town Hall. Well, you're eight. Go by yourself. Which is very funny and very much like a relic of the age before we were consciously, I guess, like, constantly aware of stranger danger. Oh, also, one of my favorite parts of this movie is the fact that Allison's family's, like, Halloween party is this, like, white colonialist, like, power fantasy cosplay. I was going to say, they they kind of have, like, they came over on the Mayflower kind of vibe going on. Yeah, and that's, uh, my understanding is that that's exactly what the entirety of New England is actually like. So that's probably very true to life. As somebody who's never been to the East Coast before. What are some other good bits? Um, I, again, I, I mentioned this before, but I like the fact that when Max is standing there waiting to take Danny out, and then uh, their dad is like, what are you supposed to be? And he goes, a rap singer. What about you, Max? What are you supposed to be? A rap singer. Oh. Well, your hat should be on sideways, shouldn't it? And his dad's like, then your hat should be turned to the side. And Max's like, don't fucking touch me. Uh, that's really funny to me. That's always funny to me. A I mean, the scene, the scene with um, Gary Marshall as the the devil is oh, very God. funny with like um a penny marshal with the like as medusa with the rollers in her hair and telling them to get out that's very very funny okay that's it party's over get out of my house then i get out of here get out of my house oh, down pudding face shove it satan 
Oh, thou should not speak to master in such a manner. <laughs> they call me master. Wait do you see what I'm going to call you. Now, tart face, take your clock bars and get out of my house. That's SJP's best scene in the movie, I think. That's her best bit. I mean, this is her best movie of her career, so... Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, sad. guess. What else is failure to launch? That's your favorite serialism <laughs> <That's laughs> of movie. movie of all time. <laughs> Uh, Binx's fursona is good. Um, I like the fact that Winifred literally anticipates a 2010s meme by going, uh-oh, sisters. I thought that was really... I, again, I obviously never noticed that before because it was not relevant before this. Um, I love the the book as a prop. I like that Max is cast as the skeptic right from the outset. He really hates everything about this small town, all their weird superstitions. He doesn't engage with it. But then as soon as there's a hot chick involved, he's just like... Yeah, I believe in that shit. Totally. It's so cool. Because it's an accurate depiction of the teenage male mind, I think. <laughs> um, I think Max is a very realistic kid. Come on, Max. Couldn't you forget about being a cool teenager just for one night? Please? Uh, I like the fact that they dead man's buns, I also think is funny. Um, when they're talking about the recipe um, for the potion... Um, the spell or whatever and then I like when they're like arguing but it was the dead man's toe and then Sarah Jessica Parker just starts going dead toe dead 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 over and over and over again in the background and a dash of pucks and a dead man's toe dead man's toe and make it a fresh one dead man's toe dead man's toe and a dead man's toe oil of boil and a dead man's nose. Dead man's toes! She's trying to concentrate. No. His thumb. Thumbs could be. Oh, was it his gums? I don't know. A dead man's bun. Dead man's bun. Sounds thumbs. like. Mums. Mums. Chunks. 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 Dead man's chunks. I also found out through a little bit of Googling that the guy who plays Ice, the bully, he also played uh, Marshall Grant from the Tennessee Two and Walk the Line. He was also in a Matthew Modine movie that made $19,000 at the box office, which even for Matthew Modine, (laughs) it's really quite an achievement. I feel like this is the least Disney-like movie of that era, though, which is nice. Definitely. It's weird that it kind of reminds me a little bit of, like, the whole um, Dark Ages, like, Disney, uh, like, live-action movies. Like, Tiff mentioned Bedness, uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Bedknobs and Broomsticks is considered part of, of the Dark Ages. But um, that, you know, uh, Return to Witch Mountain, all that kind of stuff, or whatever it's called, those also, I think, bear kind of a tonal resemblance to it, which is interesting. It's, it's kind of, it's an odd entry in the Disney catalog, and, like, all odd entries in the Disney catalog, it's one of the more interesting ones, because Disney is at its best when it's doing something a little weird and a little unconventional. I mean, which they're certainly not doing now, with their whatever fucking Frozen yeah. 2. And-, and now they've swallowed up one of the last surviving studios, but... Oh, well. That's bleak. Oh, well. Well, at least they gave us Hocus Pocus. At least they did that. Um, we'll talk more at length about our feelings about Disney and antitrustal antitrust laws. So get in the spirit, stay spooky, um, get your Heelys on for Mike Myers, um, not the actor, the character. Don't eat any apples with razor blades in them. Do not accept candy from any man in a windowless white van. Okay, all right, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.
The levels are so fucked. My 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 monitor thing on Audacity is going like. <laughs> I love it. Leave that in. <laughs> it sounds like Belial eating. That sounds like Belial eating, yeah. I just moved the table closer to me, so my audio is probably going to go like in from like far away to being like... I don't know why I made that noise. I could have just spoken <laughs> worse. <laughs> I slept all day long. I, I fell asleep at like noon and i woke up at like 6 55 i don't know what happened today or where i am were you drugged is that what is i don't know maybe lulu spent all last night kicking me in the back so i had a really hard time falling asleep because of her sharp little claws lulu likes to kick she kicks in the middle of the night like a human we'll just establish that lulu is a dog lulu's a dog <laughs> <laughs> Lulu is a dog. Yes, Lulu is a dog. She's a black mouth cur for any dog people who are listening, which is a form of hunting dog from the deep south. And she is a moron. It's very unkind. I say that with love, that she is a moron. She's a moron I love very much, very deeply. Much like Joel McRae. Fuck off. We are trying <laughs> to get through out. an episode where you don't mention him. Tim, I, I just you, had to do I it. Tim, you, you can cut that out. I just had to do bleep, it. I just had to do bleep it. Bleep his name. I don't want another fucking episode with his name in it. At this point, I'm going to be <laughs> anti-Joel by the end of this, just because of Candace. You're already anti-Joel because of his retrograde politics. Well, and also just his propensity for nudity. I've just... <laughs> Put on some fucking clothes, you flat-assed man. 